Well, amen. Amen. It's great to be with you guys today, and um, I'm so blessed to uh, just to share what the Lord has been teaching me uh, through this whole passage of Scripture. It's just been so applicable uh, to my own life. God's been really using this to encourage my soul uh, and to persevere uh, through just life's trials and uh, just to, to remember, remind myself what the Word says that uh, when a trial comes upon us, nothing strange, nothing new has come upon you but that which is common to man. So therefore, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that at times come upon, comes upon our lives as Christians. And um, the Apostle Paul is certainly a great, great model of perseverance for us. And so I hope that you will join me in digging in the Word of God to find these gems to sustain us uh, in, the midst of, in the midst of it all. And um, I trust that today you will be encouraged. Um, let's, uh, let's pray and uh, we will begin. Let's pray one more time together. <clears throat> Father, we do want to come before you as we get ready to look at your Word and to handle your Word. Father, I stand here today trembling, Lord, realizing that your Word is so incredibly holy and sacred and true. Jesus, you prayed, Lord, sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. And so, God, there's no other mechanism for our sanctification than your, uh, than your Spirit working through your Word to bring life to our souls. And so we pray, God, please do away with all the distractions in our lives that would hinder us from coming closer and closer into conformity to your will, to your word, to your son Jesus, the very, the very image that you are conforming us to. And Father, I'm grateful for this passage in front of us today, that it does reveal just how great the gospel is, that it does reveal to us, Lord, just how great the work of the gospel is, despite our circumstances or despite our trials, you are working your perfect will, and we're grateful for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Amen. Well, after I was done studying this, I had no title for my sermon, but after I spent some time really looking at the contents of what I was looking at, I, I decided to entitle the sermon, Gospel Greatness. Gospel Greatness. Because that's what it is. As I see the gospel really coming back, roaring back after verses 8 to 9, because in verses 8 to 9, the Apostle Paul, you remember, reminds us of the very things that should happen to us apart from the gospel. Because we are afflicted, we should be crushed. That should happen. That is what should happen. Because we are perplexed, we should despair in this life. Because we are persecuted, we should be forsaken. Because we're struck down, brothers and sisters, we should be destroyed. But because of God's hand of protection, because of God keeping us, preserving us, we triumph nonetheless. And Paul's point to the Corinthians is, don't, don't be deceived by what you see in our trials. 
It is through this very, what he calls death, that the life of the gospel is being brought to you so that he concludes in verse 12, so death works in us, but life works in you. That's the dynamic. That's the way that it works. In the outside, it would appear that we are a weak people, a fragile people, a frail people, a, a worthless people outside of Christ. And so we are. But God in His marvelous, sovereign wisdom has chosen to deposit His glorious gospel truth into us. Look at verse 7. We have this treasure, talking about the gospel, in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. You see that? That's the dynamic. God loves to be glorified through weakness. You ever feel weak? You ever feel crushed? You ever feel beat down? You ever feel like, man, I don't know if I can live another day. I don't know if I can be a Christian another day. I don't know if I want any more of this sanctification, right? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that God is at work and though, as Paul's going to go on to sort of in a grand climax of this whole context, declare, look, even though the outer man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed day by day, day by day. We're being renewed. And so, to show us how great the gospel is, Paul reminds us of how it's working in his life. He gives us three things. He, t he speaks us to us about the boldness that he has in his ministry, in his preaching, so that boldness comes through faith. That's the first one. Look at verse 13. He says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. An interesting twist in the context. Because for Paul, he draws upon the analogy of the psalmist. He calls on David as his example of how it was that David, and the psalm that he's quoting from is Psalm 116. I encourage you to go read the whole psalm. I don't want to read the whole psalm. But the psalm is about David's affliction. The psalm is about David's uh, his, his illnesses, his physical ailments. The psalm is about David being brought to a point where he's on the brink of despair. And what does he do? Instead of despairing, he's, David says that he believes, therefore he can speak. Therefore he can talk about the great marvelous salvation of God. And in a similar way, Paul is saying, that's what I do. That's what I've done. I believe, therefore I spoke. So that Paul, because Paul is a man of faith, he has the wherewithal to gather himself and to speak and to continue to keep speaking. Because, you know, this is what's interesting, uh, you know, especially for a pastor, for a preacher. When, when you are in a, a season of trial and affliction, a season of trouble, and where, where you're just overwhelmed and the last thing on your mind is, how am I going to study for this next sermon this week? You know, it's a lot more than just how do I get on with life? How do I live? It's how are you going to preach this week? How are you going to set it all aside and gather yourself to speak? He calls on the psalmist to help him here. I want to show you several things, wonderful things that he points out that I think we can deduce from this passage. First, 
Notice, therefore, that Paul roots his encouragement, his experience, with the broader experience of the people of God. He says he has the same spirit of faith. A very interesting phrase. Really, grammatically, it can go a couple ways. Paul is either talking about the Holy Spirit, therefore, the construction would be something like the Spirit that produces faith if this is indeed a reference to the Holy Spirit. The majority of commentators, however, and grammars and exegetes would say, no, what Paul is uh, referring to here is a disposition, an attitude. But let me just encourage you with this. Both are true, right? The Spirit produces faith in our lives. The Spirit gave you faith to believe the gospel, and the Spirit gives you faith to keep believing the gospel all your life long. But... Paul is also saying that he has the same perspective as the psalmist. He has the same perspective, which shows me that there's a continuity with the people of God that they've always had. They've always had faith. Always been pe- we've always been a people of faith that believe and trust in the promises of God. And so Pete, Paul is just saying, look, the experience that I'm going through is the same experience that the people of God have always gone through For example, David, the psalmist. But the second thing is that it shows us that Paul is also careful to root his experience in Scripture. Notice he says, it's according to what has been written. It's according to what has been written. I love that about Paul, that he flees to the Bible for help. Do you do that? Do you flee to the Bible when you need help in your life, when you're struggling? when you're tired, when you're beat down, when you're weighed down by various trials, afflictions, tribulations, what have you. When life just gets hard and complicated and you don't have joy for the day and you don't really feel really good, do you run to your emotions? Do you run to your psychological state of mind? Or do you flee to the Bible? Brothers and sisters, we must always be a people that flees to the Bible. One of the reasons I was so, um, you know, just sort of a little bit disappointed that I couldn't continue the Psalms, because I never took you to Psalms 1, but Psalm 1 is all about that. If you live the Christian life, how? By meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. That's how we're going to live the Christian faith. That's the way that it works. Paul's attitude and faith produced in him a boldness to open his mouth and to preach and to keep on preaching the gospel with passion, with conviction, and so that what we have here is sort of the climax or the end. Kind of if you would, uh, Paul gives us sort of two bookends in the way that he handles the Word of God. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 sort of begins this whole idea of remember and keep in mind the broader context of the book of Corinthians that Paul's ministry is kind of being undermined. It's being questioned. And so he begins in chapter 2, verse 17, to talk about how he handles the Word. And he says, We are not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak. See, the dynamic there is the same. 
He's talking about his proclamation, his preaching ministry. He says, we speak in Christ in the sight of God so that Paul is dominated by sincerity, transparency. He knows that what I'm doing right now up here has to be done in the presence of God, before God, in the sight of God. In other words, for the preacher, the audience that matters more than anything else is the one in heaven, more than his own church, more than his own members. The pastor has to first and foremost be dominated by the idea that the gaze of God's eye is on him. And then he goes on to talk about his boldness because of the nature of the new covenant. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Therefore, we have such a hope, the hope of the glory of God, the hope of the new covenant. He says, we use great boldness in our speech. And then he says that this all of this ministry that he does, he does with the utmost integrity. You remember chapter 4, verse 2? Look at that verse. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, speaking again about his preaching ministry, his ministry as a pastor, as an apostle, as a shepherd, he says, but we have renounced the hidden things uh, because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. And that phrase, remember, we looked at that. Adulterating the Word of God has financial connotations. He's not trying to get money for preaching the Word of God, like so many do. There are so many people that do that. There are so many people that live their, conduct their ministry that way. What Paul calls in 1 Timothy chapter 3, sordid gain. There is a greed, a lust for money. And that's what motivates many preachers. That's why some preachers won't preach the whole Bible. That's why some preachers won't talk about the things that are hard to hear, like sin or church discipline or hell or holiness or sovereignty. They avoid those types of topics because it is not conducive to their overall goal in the ministry, which is not the glory of God, but it's money. It can be many other things, but that's just one example. Paul says, I don't adulterate the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth. He says, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I tell you, that's the aim of all ministry. To be able to commend your conscience before every, or to be able to commend your ministry before the conscience of any man. To say, look at my ministry. Look at my life. I'm an open book. You can look at me clearly and see that I am a man of integrity. So, Paul was not shy about his ministry, but he was filled with boldness. He didn't shy away from the Word of God, but he spoke the Word with great boldness. And that's what he's saying right here. He says, we believe, therefore, also we, he says, we also believe, therefore, we also speak. And uh, the plural there, you see, we also speak, we also speak. That is, um, that is referring to Paul and his associates, men like Timothy, men like Titus, men like Silvanus, the apostles, the early church, the apostolic church. They preached in this way. And you know what? It gets me to thinking that the Apostle Paul believed what he preached. He says, we believe, therefore we spoke. Sort of implies that he believed what he spoke. He believed what the Word of God said. I tell you, there's nothing more dreadful than not believing what the Word of God says, especially for a pastor. I can't think of anything more grotesque 
Uh, there could be no, like Spurgeon says in his books, All My Students, he says, there could be nothing more grotesque than a preacher that does not believe his own Bible. And he's right. He's right. You've got to believe what you preach. If not, what will end up happening is you'll end up substituting the Bible for other things. Other things. All sorts of effects and gimmicks and props and dramas. And uh, all of a sudden, the church will become more about the music than about the word. And so what ends up happening is what the church becomes uh, just obsessed with is putting on a show. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not condemning any churches for having a nice worship team. Trust me, I wish we had a nice worship team. But, but uh, you know what I'm saying. The emphasis is off. The center has been moved, and the Word of God has to be central to everything that ministry is about. But notice his other motive for encouragement. What is the other reason why the gospel is so great? Secondly, there is confidence because of resurrection. And look at verse 14. It has everything to do with what you know. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Oh, I love it. That's why I go so slow. <laughs> Only a few verses because there's all these prepositional relationships. What's he talking about? With Jesus, with you, present. There's all this, all this uh, going on here, and it's all very important. But needless to say, Paul had this eschatological view that encouraged him. You know, eschatology has a lot more to do than just with the nature of the millennium. You know that? <laughs> eschatology has more to do than just the timing of Christ's return or the future. But there is an already not yet aspect to eschatology. The eschatology that Paul is talking about here is what theologians call personal eschatology individual eschatology. He knew that because of his union with Christ, there was a resurrection hope waiting for him. There was a hope of future personal resurrection. And look at the dynamic. He banks on the power of God. What power? The same power that rose Jesus from the dead. I love it. I love it. Because every one of us, if you are in Christ can have that same hope that what is this all this Christianity is based on, right? The resurrection. And at that critical juncture, you can say the same power that worked in the resurrection, without which we have no Christianity, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Or chapter 15, later on in the chapter, he says that. He says, without the resurrection... Your faith is in vain. What are you doing here? What are you sitting in these blue churches, these blue chairs for? Right? Got plenty of other things to do. I'm sure there's a good ball game on. But if the res resurrection did occur, and certainly it did, then our hope is secure. But Paul says, look, the same power that makes our faith possible is at work in you securing and assuring that one day you, my dear friend, if you are in Christ, will be raised from the dead. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
Not even death. Not even the sword. Not even tragedy, calamity, disease, illness, sickness. You know it's getting colder, right? It's getting colder. How do I know that? Don't look at the, don't look at the news or don't check the barometer. Just ask me if my body hurts. Because it does. I woke up this morning thinking, wow, I'm getting old. Aches and pains magnified, right? Brothers and sisters, we are breaking down. Exactly what verse 16 says. The outer man is decaying. Ladies, you'll only be beautiful for so long. Guys, you'll only be buff and tough for so long. It's going to fade. Look at my hair. It's getting grayer by the day. What are you hoping in? What are you trusting in? What are you banking on? What are you holding on to? This life, forget about it. You must have an eschatological hope the way Paul did. You have to trust in this dynamic that the one that rose Jesus from the dead will also, by virtue of the same power, raise you. Uh, all over the place where Paul speaks about this, he is consistent. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if He dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So that basically, no matter what happens to these mortal bodies, listen, God will give you life. 1 Corinthians 6.14 1 Corinthians 6.14, he says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. That's ex what, what, what a close parallel we have here, right? He will smash all sin, all affliction under our feet. 1 Corinthians 15.20, he says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. This is our hope, that in Christ we have a paradigm for the way that life goes. It is exaltation through resurrection. That's what we are awaiting, brothers and sisters. And I see a lot of other things here. A lot of other things that are very precious to the Christian heart. Listen, he, he not only talks about his personal hope and this eschatological hope, but notice that his hope is rooted in union with Christ. Look at what he says. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him. With him. By virtue of our union with Him. By virtue of our connectedness to Jesus Christ. That's why God will raise us. Are you connected to Jesus Christ? Are you in the vine? Secondly, the text presents another union. A union between pastor and sheep. Pastor and church. He, look at what he says. He goes on to say He will also raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. You see that? So for Paul, he saw that death, he saw that the resurrection and the hope that is entailed in that means a lot more just than his individual body will be raised from the dead, but that he will be raised with them. That he will experience this resurrection with the believers. Death is just a temporary parting for us. Right? Death is kind of like church service that ends for a little while, but then convenes again in the greatest church service of all. 
and the church in heaven, the church of the firstborn, the church in Zion. That's what we're waiting. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And uh, the Apostle Paul longed for that day. He longed to be able to present the church before God as a spotless bride, holy, blameless. In other words, the Apostle Paul was so concerned about the purity of the church, more concerned than the looks of the church, more concerned than the size of the church, more concerned than the money of the church, more concerned than the popularity of the church or the popularity of his own ministry. He was concerned with the purity of the church. How is your soul? That's what he cared about. That's what he cared about, is the, the sanctification status of his people. He says in Galatians chapter 4, my soul is in anguish. It's in labor over you until what? Until Christ is formed in you. He wants to see more and more of Jesus in your life. That's what he was obsessed by. Now look at this because I thought this was extremely important. The third thing, not only is there union with Christ, union, if you would, with one another, but the third thing, the third thing, there is an authentication that's going to happen on, at, the at the resurrection, at the, the consummation of all things, when Christ returns to establish his kingdom. There will be an authentication both of the preacher and the church. He says, he will present us. Now, making a lot out of that phrase, because every time he uses that phrase, he talks about an eschatological presentation before God, before Christ, before the hosts of heaven, from not only his own ministry, but also the church. He's going to present us. Isn't that amazing? And dear brothers and sisters, I long for that myself to be able on the day of judgment to present Heritage Grace a pure bride to present us. Because what it will mean for us, brothers and sisters, is an authentication not only of my preaching ministry, but also of our church ministry, of your church membership. I think it's so important because it encourages us to believe that we are in a true church. It doesn't matter how many trials we go through. It doesn't matter how many afflictions, how many setbacks. It, none of that matters. If you are in a true church, one day God will vindicate you, will vindicate the ministry, vindicate heritage grace. I think that's just amazing. What a goal to strive after, right? What an amazing goal to have, to have a pure church, a church that loves God and His glory above all else. Above all else, he uses this word, let me just give you an example, to present us, right? He uses this exact same word in Romans chapter 14 of the very fact that believers will be presented at the judgment. Therefore, don't go judging one another prematurely, Romans 14.10. He also talks about presenting us in Ephesians chapter 5 when he teaches there the idea of the husband and wife relationship being a picture of the church and Christ. He also talks about being the individual believer, being holy and blameless, for one day he will be presented before Christ. He also talks about in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, that we will be presented complete in Christ, complete in him, lacking nothing in Christ. All in all, this is a presentation which will appear before the hosts of heaven, before God, men, angels, and all other creatures. 
however many they will be, of the magnificent work of God's grace in our lives, we will be vindicated. Amazing. Now, let me give us our last, our last point here so that we have not only uh, uh, boldness through speech or bold speech through faith, boldness because of faith, the second one is confidence because of the resurrection. And the third one is worship because of blessing. And the, way, the reason why I said blessing was because of verse, uh, the first part of verse 15. He says, he concludes, after looking at all of this, he concludes, for all things are for your sake. So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. That's what's happening. But that first phrase there, all things are for your sakes. I think that's amazing. Everything is working for your sake. It's kind of a, 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 a snapshot of what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Everything is working out for your good. I hope that you revel in that, relish in that. So that when you're presented with these trials, okay, that's the context we're in. We're in a context where Paul is having a hard time with this church. They're questioning his ministry. They're undermining his authority. They've got people in the church that are undermining his preaching, his apostolic authority. And Paul reminds them all of these issues, and even more than that, all of the sufferings that he's gone through, which he will get into in great detail in chapter 11. He says, all of that, all of that is for your sakes. We might say, well, wow, well, no thanks, I don't really want that. That's a nice gift, but I don't know that I want all those trials. But he's saying that those things are working towards a greater goal, namely the glory of God. So there are three things here. There is an overflow of grace Notice what he says, so that the grace which is spreading, that's the way my Bible reads, the grace that is spreading to more and more people. So the first thing is he wants them to have the proper perspective that the gospel, the reason why it's so great is that despite its tri the trials in their lives, the gospel is spreading. It's overflowing. It's spilling the banks of the church, and it's going on into more and more people. What a goal. I love that. That's the goal that we should have for ministry. We want the grace of God to spread to more and more people. So invite them to church and go out and get them. Don't you want the grace of God to spread to more and more people? This is a call to be evangelistic, to think evangelistically. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Kind of a parallel passage and a very similar idea, but oh, so good. Kind of gives us a deeper explanation of what he's talking about. Listen to what he says here. This is the same dynamic at work. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word of God, or excuse me, the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, 
not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we do not have to say, excuse me, so that we have no need to say anything. In other words, the church's faith, the way they were living the gospel, was self-authenticating. Why? Because it was spreading to more and more people. Their faith was going out, was sounding. The word there, sounded forth. That convinces most commentators to conclude that what Paul has in mind there is that the preaching of the gospel was going through this church. More and more people were being affected, so much so that Paul didn't have to say anything. Their works spoke for itself. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. So there's an overflow of grace. Now, notice this. There's also an increase of thanksgiving. These are all the things working for them. There's an increase in thanksgiving so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks. The giving of thanks. What is he talking about there? What is this giving of thanks? The giving of thanks is the thanksgiving that comes from people. (laughs) But people that have been born again, people that have come into the gospel, people that have been saved through the ministry of the church, and you see this all over the book of Acts. You see this in Peter's ministry. When he goes to Cornelius' house, you see this in Paul when he goes all over the place. You see this in, in uh, Paul, uh, Peter in Joppa, you see it Paul in Ephesus, you see it in Paul in Corinth, you see it all over the book of Acts. People getting saved and then giving thanks and giving glory to God. It's beautiful. And that's what we should do as well. There's an increase of thanksgiving. And then last of all, there is an abundance of worship. Because that's what he says. The giving of thanks abounds to the glory of God. That is the final goal. That is the final aim. The praise of God. The glory of God. And here I will quote John Piper. Missions exists because worship doesn't. That's the whole purpose of evangelism. That's the whole purpose of missions. Why do we go to the hard places of the world? We just watched a video called Dispatches from the Front. And it's a missionary video of a guy uh, by the name of Kessie is his name. I think his name is uh, Keith Kessie. And he goes to some of the hardest places in the world. You should get these DVDs. You can find them on Westminster's library, Westminster Theological Seminary's library. There's, it's a five-volume uh, set of, 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 of missions. And we watched one the other night. I think it's the last one I needed to watch. And it was on Africa. And I just tell you, it broke my heart just to see these people languishing in darkness. But oh, it just rejoiced my heart to see these people coming into the light. To see men that were once former Muslims deep into in a Muslim faith and, 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 and living their whole lives trying to convert people to Islam People who've murdered, killed, communists who were there because of different, the influence of different nations that converted a man who was, who was a very powerful communist in the region was, became saved. He became saved. And what did he do? How did God change this guy's life? 
by starting an orphanage and ministering to hundreds of orphans. This is what God does. And what does it result in? It results in a hundred nationals from Africa or Sudan in a, in a, in a hut church made out, of, made out of mud and sticks praising God and giving thanks to God. That's what it results in. Yeah, you got to see this video. I wish, you know, uh, I don't play mo- movie clips and stuff like that during my sermons, but I'm tempted to right now. <laughs> it will result in the glory of God. That's the point of it. That's why we preach. That's why we do what we do, because it results in the glory of God. Oh, it may not seem like it. It may seem like all things are against us. It may seem like there's a tidal wave of trials coming into my life. But even in that, remember, all things are working together for your good. Therefore, all things are yours. Listen to what Paul told the Corinthians earlier. This is nothing new for them to hear Paul say this. 1 Corinthians 3.21, he says, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ. That's almost to me an explanatory clause. Why? Do all things belong to you because you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. And that's why, brothers and sisters, all things are yours. Oh, I tell you what, you are victorious. Just like Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, I do thank You. Lord, thank You for the grace that we have. Father, thank You for leading us, Lord, in triumph. Thank You that You are so great. Thank You that You've given us such a great hope in the Gospel. And Father, we pray that you would use us for your glory. Help us not to be deceived by the temporal. But like Paul is going to go on to tell us, help us to see the eternal. Help us to see behind these temporary trials, behind the the things that may cause us to suffer in this life temporarily. And help us to see the greater good, the sovereign good, the good that you are working through all of these things. Give us faith to be like Paul, to say, I believed, therefore I speak. God, give us faith to speak your truth to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.